Welcome to the Ascension Cast. This is the Axe Project. I'm Jarrett Blue. I'm Robbie Lockett. And I'm Alexander Thomas. Hello. Hello. Well, guys, I think we are at the end of the road here. It's kind of sad. This is our last episode on Axe, so... The Axe Project's going to bed now. <laughs> going to bed. I guess going to bed at least for the summer, at least. Um, you know, a new topic, uh, maybe some new artwork. We'll have all kinds of things to dig into here. Stay yeah. tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> But for now, we'll dig into chapters 27 and 28 of Acts. And we last left Paul in chapter 26, where um, he was before Agrippa. And at the end, I guess, in essence, it's like as you, you know, thou protest too much because otherwise he could have not had to go to Rome. But since he (laughs) wanted to appeal to Caesar, you know, he's on this journey. And I don't know about you guys, like when I started reading this, you know, you start in 27, there's all this discussion about being on a boat it reminded me like George Clooney in the perfect storm. <laughs> and like you're getting a lot of details about uh, being in the ocean and like things not going well along that journey. I'll um, be honest as a non boat person, I was kind of confused that they're naming different types of winds and everything. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm watching the weather channel. Or something. <laughs> um, but what we find here is Paul is, you know, I guess, has a, a feeling or like a notion that things are not going to go well for him. Maybe it's just because of what's occur- what we've witnessed for Paul to occur over the last, you know, many chapters throughout Acts, but definitely is aware that there's some issues ahead with the storms um, that lie ahead. Um, and we later see in, in 27 that there, there are indeed um, issues for Paul and the crew on the boat. And, you know, being on the boat here, I think this gives us a neat little look at the author of Acts. Uh, you know, traditionally, the, this we, we say this is Luke, and it's the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke. The Luke that's referenced later in Paul's letters as the physician and all of that. But um, and certainly no reason here to cast doubt or, or uh, uh, to confirm that. Uh, <laughs> but one thing that we learn about the author is that this guy sails boats um, <laughs> because um, you you start to see all of this detail just come out. And it's like suddenly you, you get this kind of literary whiplash. It was like, am I reading Robert Louis Stevenson here for a minute? <laughs> uh, where's Herman Melville, you know? But uh, we find out that they're, uh, the harbor they were on, we know it faces the southwest and northwest to winter there, the details you know about a harbor because you need to know where the winds are coming from and all that kind of thing. And then we pick up getting on the ship with a gentle south wind springing up, and there's all of this detail about the rigging and the type of ship and the the way it was sailing and all of these different things that happen. Even on all the way out to the end when when they get to the part of actually wrecking the ship and all the talk <laughs> of the you know the sandbar and the bow jamming fast and remaining unmovable and the stern began to break up in the pounding of the waves and there's just this clearly this is a person who has experienced a lot of good and bad days in a boat (laughs) Uh, not just on this trip but uh, uh, has a a lifetime and describing the seasons and direction of winds that uh, the wind blows from the wrong place at this time of year don't go (laughs) (laughs) you know just knowing the sea and the wind and all of that kind of thing is a a really uh, 
it, it tells us something about the author. Uh, maybe he was a physician. Maybe he wrote a gospel too. Uh, but uh, clearly he knew his way around uh, the rigging of a ship. Uh, but you also see there near the end of that voyage, um, you know, they haven't eaten for quite a while, um, probably from seasickness, if nothing else, um, being tossed about and all of that kind of thing. But then uh, uh, all of a sudden we, we see Paul urging them to take food and he leads them uh, in that act. And there's a, a definite callback there to um, earlier pieces of Luke's gospel in particular. Very much so. So right after they break this fast, which has been going on for 14 days, in chapter 27, verse 35, I'm going to read it because it might sound familiar. And I, I hope it sounds familiar. <laughs> um, verse 35, after he had said this, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to, to eat. Then it, then it goes on. And what really stands out about this part is that word for word, this terminology and the structure of the sentence, it's matching exactly um, the Eucharistic introduction given in the Gospel of Luke. And you don't quote yourself word for word with something as big as the Eucharistic language by accident. And so that, that really stood out to me when I'm reading through this and suddenly I'm like, oh, that sounds like communion. And... And I'm just asking the guys because I'm still thinking through all of this. It's like it's almost like there is this communion that Paul is giving to Gentiles and to others. And not only Gentiles, like these are prisoners. And so as we're watching this gospel spread in its inclusivity, like he is including now no other Jews, only Gentiles and prisoners and Romans, which, you know, is the worst kind of Gentile. (laughs) (laughs) So I I don't know. I'm just... uh, what are your thoughts on the Eucharistic elements here? Because you can't ignore it. As you were talking, I had kind of like a similar thought. Like it is interesting that there's this callback of, you know, providing the elements to like the least of these, like to the prisoners. Yeah. So it's not just a focus like on the Jews. And I think it's, you know, not by happenstance that, you know, you're seeing this call out. Um, I think you find Paul here, you know, I don't know. I guess as you look at the remaining chapters of Acts, I don't think that there is ever another mention of like providing like the Eucharistic elements or any kind of thing along those lines. So like you kind of wonder what was in in Acts in Acts, was there another call out of that? So I think Mm -hmm. like it's interesting, like at this time, like this is it. We, We know Paul continued to preach even after things are more or less wrapping up for him. And like, as we are, um, were shared his, his, his life and acts, but you kind of wonder like, why is it at this moment? Like the author's (laughs) like stopping, like hard, like focusing a little bit on, well, they were in the water. That was baptism. Now they're eating. Oh, very true. Yeah. And then you preach. Yeah. (laughs) I think the preaching is supposed to come first, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) we have to pull out the didache and see uh, where the homily was supposed to go way back then. There is the kind of, um, you know, that, the casual way in which that is thrown in here just kind of gives you the impression of this is just Paul doing a thing that Paul does. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's clear from his letters to the Corinthians that he celebrated Eucharist with the Corinthians. He's been to Corinth and gone at this point. (laughs) That's way in the past. But um, it's just a, 
you know, it, it just kind of has a thing of, you know, here's Paul doing Paul things. Uh, it just... It's not like this was a big breakthrough for him, probably. So, are you saying Eucharist should be a way of life for us? I think so, yes. Oh, man. So <laughs> since you, you can't see my office, but my favorite icon is right behind um, Jared. And they're both looking over there. I hope it's over there. Oh, yeah, there it is. I can, yeah, It's the one where Jesus is feeding the 5,000. It's from John 6. And mm-hmm. I'm going to add this in. So this was my wedding gift uh, from Rachel. And I love this story because... To me, it's a picture of Eucharistic living. And, and what I love about it is um, both in John 6, when Jesus, you know, the little boy comes up with loaves and fish and Jesus takes it, breaks it, gives thanks, gives it back to the disciples and then they feed thousands, you know, 5,000 men. So thousands of other people as well. And they collect the 12 overflowing baskets, which is like there's enough to feed the rest of Israel too. What I love about the story is a few things that remind me of Eucharistic living. One of them, Jesus never feeds the people. Mm-hmm. And that's the calling of the church. Like we are to be God for the world and we bring God to the world. But part of what is broken, like in Eucharist, it's not just bread, it's us. We are the one that are broken. We would hope along with Jesus and gives ourselves to others. Um, I love that icon. <laughs> I love that part here. And yeah. what we're seeing with Paul is he's breaking himself out. To yeah. feed people. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful. We do not presume to come to this thy table, right? You know. Trusting in our own righteousness, but in the great mercy. And so now, you know, let's jump back into um, ship handling and the lack thereof um, <laughs> uh, in, in this storm that they've been enduring, uh, which maybe it's worth asking the question too of uh, it's kind of like this storm has come for Paul in a way and it uh, made me think of Jonah um, Mm -hmm. that uh, you know in this case they're throwing grain overboard uh, (laughs) and and they never throw Paul overboard exactly Um, but the 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 whole thing crashes home uh, on a place that they call Malta um, which where is Malta Uh, there's a little detail here that will lead us into some interesting thoughts about where Malta might be. Um, you know, they, they, they're they on the beach and kind of making a camp, haven't run into any of the natives yet, and in building the fire, fall, Paul reaches into the firewood, and when he brings his hand out, there's a viper uh, attached to his hand. Um, the natives all see this and expect him to die, but he just casts it down and he's <laughs> fine. Um, and so initially they thought that he was a murderer or something, and the the, the goddess of justice had, uh, <laughs> had, had, had was there to smite him. Uh, but instead he's totally fine, and so they change their minds and decide that he is in fact a god. Mm. Um, but there's this interesting bit about the, the, the fact that there's this venomous snake that bites Paul on Malta. Uh, there are no venomous snakes on Malta. What? <laughs> what do you mean? If you go to Malta, you're apparently totally fine in terms of venomous snakes, and St. Patrick wasn't even there to uh, pipe them out of the land. Um, so it, it appears that there's some kind of a problem. Uh, Paul couldn't have been bitten by a venomous snake on Malta, given what we know about Malta today. And so <laughs> something must have happened. Uh, maybe they weren't on Malta. Maybe 
Paul's miraculously de-venomized the snakes uh, in this event, or maybe the venomous snakes have died out, or, or all kinds of things. So each, each of us all took a different view that we're just going to briefly go over. But one of these ideas is um, that a lot of different scholars and commentaries would present this. And so if you read it, some would say, well, this story about Paul is not actually uh, a historical event. They would even say maybe most of Acts is written more like an epic than it is like a historical account. And that would be true for this uh, little part about uh, a snake jumping out and um, biting Paul and everyone going, oh my gosh, he's going to die because the snakes are venomous. And as Robbie said, there is no venomous snakes on Malta, which leads to a lot of questions. And so one of the answers to that is that this story um, about Paul being bitten by the venomous snake is actually supposed to remind you of another very popular epic at the time that's called the story with Anidia and Virgil. And in this story, there is a lot of popular, it's very popular at the time, but there's a lot of similarities to it and what's happening in Acts and how kind of the rest of the book is going to finish. Um, and to not give too many spoilers away from this epic, um, it's about a guy that's on his way to journey to Rome. Um, and there's a lot of conflict with two people groups that are in Rome and the result of the story is driven by the divine and by the gods. Um, those two people are brought together into one better people, becoming the Romans. And they build this great city. It changes the world and everyone loves them. And everybody worships their gods. Which is what we're going to find as we look through the rest of Acts. We're seeing these two peoples, Gentiles and Jews, being brought and made into a new family, the Christians, and then the result would be, well, everyone loves the Christians and they worship God and, and you know, the world's a better place. Um, that is one kind of explanation that when you see this story, it's a preview to make you think about what's happening uh, with the other epic and what God is doing in Paul. But it's not the only view. So I'm going to hand it over to Jared for his. Right. So there's another view, which I guess is more of the pragmatic view, which I guess <laughs> also if you like are thinking about traveling to Malta, maybe you feel more comfortable with this view, <laughs> planning your summer travels and whatnot. But it would just be that the the snake that is then thought of to exist has been gone extinct. And so that would kind of be like a pretty straightforward way to think about it that obviously the no fossil records yeah no <laughs> there, there are no fossil <laughs> records um and we date you know this back to the first century so it would be plausible that over time maybe conditions were not right for this venomous snake that <laughs> is discussed here in acts um and has gone extinct um i would like to believe that maybe if i decide to go to malta that would be a good way to look <laughs> at it <laughs> and it sounds so much like saint patrick in ireland right. uh, get out of here snakes yeah well, um, another comforting thought about your Mediterranean cruise. <laughs> there is actually only one island in the Mediterranean that has venomous snakes. Uh, and there is some naming similarity between that island and what we now know as Malta. Um, the, in Latin, the Roman names of a lot of these places, apparently, where it was Melita. I assume there was a, a word to go with it, you know, <laughs> the, the same way that we have all these Caesareas, um, probably some kind of a descriptor, but there's Melita, uh, which you can see how that kind of over time becomes Malta, uh, just linguistically, the, the changes there. But there's also another island um, today that is now known as Melita, um, which you can see 
how those maybe came from the same name and went in a little bit different directions. Maleta is... Uh, back to the maps um, <laughs> on the west coast of Macedonia, uh, kind of north of Greece, across the Adriatic from Italy, um, is is Meleda, and there is still to this day a venomous viper on that island. So maybe no, 1910 got wiped out with the introduction of the mongoose. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> you're, you're totally safe in the whole Mediterranean. <laughs> no. uh, but they, uh, so we actually know what happened to that. Viper. <laughs> uh, but uh, so maybe they were not on what the, the Malta that we think of, which is, uh, of course, kind of off of Sicily, uh, the the toe of Italy kicking it, uh, kind of business. But instead, they were up in the Adriatic between um, Italy and Greece, uh, on this island that we would now call Meleta. Nonetheless, whatever your trinity of snake views, um, <laughs> probably don't go picking up snake and testing God. Just going to throw that in there. But what we see is God confirming this working through Paul. I think we just found what we're going to start doing on these fifth Sundays when there's no spiritual snocks offering. <laughs> and I know Jared has a lot more to talk about us with these miracles that Paul has. Right. So I think it's interesting here where we find Paul is once again provide, doing a miracle, um, you know, didn't die, you know, first by like his <laughs> like poisonous snakes. But then we're finding later that he's then asked to provide a healing um, and, for someone who's sick in bed, suffering from dysentery. And I think that it's another example of God using Paul um, and providing um, a reminder that he is, you know, still performing, you know, miracles. And I guess in the idea that more or less that, you know, faith is in important to the Christian doctrine, but also I think that at times we need reminders in a more physical sense of, of, the, of God's wonders and his works that he can provide for us. Obviously we can, or hopefully we all can look back at our own personal lives and think about that. But I think it's interesting that we, we look at back at here at, uh, in Acts where Paul has gone through so many tests throughout, um, especially in this last, you know, portion here with the shipwreck that God is still per- doing miracles through him but then those that are maybe not as familiar with paul and like the ministry (laughs) there's a need you know for a a tangible source or something they can look back to very much so god saying this is this is where the work is happening look right here you can't miss it i love it um the accident it it kind of develops in such an interesting way. There's the weird chapter, which as a non-boat guy, chapter 27 doesn't click much with me. Uh, <laughs> never thought I'd get on so much of a tangent about snakes that we spent way too long talking about before this started. Um, but then I absolutely love kind of what happens after all these miracles and everything begins to take place. Um, Paul is set out to go to Rome. Um, and, he, and he takes a very clear couple of steps. And I'm going to name just three verses that are kind of ending in chapter 28. Verse 17, verse 24, and verse 28. So, and this really, like, for the rest of Paul's ministry and other books, like, we're seeing this continuation. Verse 17, he goes to the Jew first. Um, And Paul then again lays out the same case that we've heard throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And then in verse 24... Um, a lot of the Jews end up rejecting Paul and Paul's message about Jesus. And then we see kind of the results of that in verse 28. And to me, this is like the conclusion then of the book of Acts. Um, Let it be known to you that this 
salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. And so it went to the Jew first, the Jews rejected, and then to the Gentiles. And here we see um, kind of Paul's whole mission, his whole point in life and the book of Acts. The gospel has come to the Gentiles, and now it's in Rome. And what's really exciting about this part, I know we're not always supposed to talk about Greek, um, but in the Greek word order, um, word order doesn't matter as much like it does in English, though there still is a typical word order. So in English, we usually have the subject verse uh, first. In Greek, you usually have a subject, maybe the verb at the beginning, um, kind of like in German where there's like the verbs in the beginning, but you rarely have the end of the sentence or the object at the, at the beginning of the sentence. And the word order in verse 28 is strange because it puts Gentiles right up at the front. And there is no way to miss it when you are reading Acts that the salvation of God is for the Gentiles. And, and it's, it's worded like, to the Gentiles, the salvation of God, it has come, uh, and they're listening. <laughs> and there's no way to miss it. And, you know, the, the quotation that comes right before that, uh, that Luke gives us from Isaiah 6, I think is interesting as Luke is concluding this whole story. Hmm. Um, he's calling back to Isaiah 6, I think, in a way to say, none of this is a new thing, a different hmm. thing. This is a fulfilled thing that this salvation has come to the Gentiles, you know, up to that point in, in Isaiah, you've gotten these ideas of, you know, the light to lighten the Gentiles and all of that kind of thing. And then in chapter six, of course, is when Isaiah gets that, you know, the commissioning scene Mm -hmm. before the throne of God. And, um, you know, he's, he's there, he sees all of these wonderful things. He's cleansed with the hot coal on his (laughs) lips. And then he hears the, the voice of God saying, uh, whom shall I send? And he says, here am I, send me. And then he's, you know, kind of, what do I do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the answer is what Luke quotes for us here, um, uh, what Luke has Paul quoting for us here, really, in uh, verses 26 and 27. Go to these people and say, you know, and, and that's, you know, what has Paul done other than go to these people and say, and, uh, of course, the rest of it is a bit of a polemic against um, <laughs> those who are hard of heart. Um, but I think Luke's telling us this is the fulfillment of these things. It's not some different thing that's not these things. Yeah. I think it's interesting when you look at verse 30, then it says, For two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. And kind of, you know, as you were mentioning there, Robbie, like, you know, where Paul has been going out, you know, Mm -hmm. doing the ministry, like people are coming to him, which I think Mm -hmm. is kind of like poetic in some (laughs) shape or fashion. But I think that the, you know, in essence, like the ministry continues. I mean, I guess at this point you don't, Paul doesn't know like where things are going to go necessarily. But I think we know as like the Christian church that there's still, you know, work to be done, that people need to still be aware of the message. Yeah. Um, and and, and it, the coolest part is this would be where kind of Paul begins to finish his largest letters, like the book of Romans here in Rome, mm-hmm. continuing that, that letter and that message to go to all people. With all boldness and without hindrance, I think. Just the... And then the book ends. Yeah. yeah. 
And I, I like the way that it ends. My first question when I read it is, well, what happened to Paul after? And I actually, like, I thought there was another page. And I, was like, <laughs> my, I was like, what? And I, and I, I had to look it up because I, I thought it had missed a page because I print my books out separately mm-hmm. so I can take notes in them. Um, but the biggest part is, what will I do, I think? How will I present Jesus and how will I live? How will I be a Eucharist to the world? Mm-hmm. Well, I think if we Paul, follows Paul's, you know, example, like to live boldly for Christ and, mm-hmm. um, you know, spread the gospel to others, no matter, you know, who they are and um, be accepting of others. So I think Paul, frankly, was very, you know, he had his challenges, but I think he was <laughs> overall like, or he had become very accepting of those that were different um, from him, which I think is, yeah. you know, a good example for us all. Yeah, you know, I think um, in in a way, the ending there that does hand it off to us, it reminds me of back in chapter 26 when King Agrippa told Paul, <laughs> you've almost persuaded me to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. And you get the sense that, you know, that wasn't just sarcasm of you've said a lot of words here, but you get this sense that maybe Agrippa was close. Maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe he was right there about to say, okay, fine, let's do this. And I think here, you know, at the end of the book, I think that's Luke giving us the opportunity to, to grab it mm-hmm. and, and say, okay, you know, let's do this. Let's not be almost persuaded. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Well, Paul's story maybe doesn't end here. If you're curious, kind of the tradition has it that um, Paul, here he is like in, in Rome for two years, he sees the emperor, but his accusing parties never come. And so the emperor sets him free. And Paul continues his missionary journeys, which, Robbie, I know you were telling us before, he went east first, yeah, the, then west to in, Spain. In Titus, the, the, the letter to Titus, it is uh, stated that Paul went to Crete, um, which he just really couldn't have done at any point during mm. what he was doing here in Acts. So it must have happened after this. Um, and also um, Clement of Rome um, who's usually held to be the, f- the fourth pope, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, writing in around AD 95 or something. A decent chance Clement of Rome knew Paul while he was in Rome kind of guy. Uh, he tells us that Paul did, in fact, make it to Spain at some point. And then tradition has it he maybe five or so years later, after he leaves Romans, uh, left Rome, comes back, and I think it's Emperor Nero then that finally he dies mm-hmm. for his faith. Yeah. in the glorious way I imagine Paul probably would have wanted to. But he lived a long and full life. Remember, this is decades and decades from when we saw Paul in the beginning. But what a message, watching the church grow to the ends of the world. And we can still do the same thing today. Well, guys, I think this concludes our journey through Acts. Um, I guess we first want to just want to thank you all for listening to mm-hmm. the podcast and you know, I know that I learned a lot from you all throughout this time. Um, and so with that, um, we would say, you know, definitely continue to check out the Formation Sunday School classes. Um, if you have a topic you would like for us to maybe delve into later, we would love to hear your feedback and work with that. Um, but with that, I will say peace. 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 peace.